episode 163 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Point. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. Hi, my name is Amy White. I'm a commercial instrument pilot and certificated flight instructor. I own a Blastar experimental airplane. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. I feel like I've said this a ton of times, but a fellow North Carolinian is on the podcast, Amy White. Amy is currently, at, recently, if you follow her on Instagram, she is done with the Coast Guard. As you'll hear her talk about the Coast Guard, she is officially out. She is, I believe, in Colorado right now, flying her amazing airplane that she has. That is just so cool and so much fun to follow her and see what she does and fly and just... just her story is pretty incredible. I was really excited to have Amy on the podcast and she was actually one of my first follows on Instagram that I did when I first started Pilot to Pilot. So it was really cool getting to have her on and and talk to her. So I hope you enjoy the story. If you do, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can also follow us on Instagram. If you want to check out Patreon, it's patreon.com slash pilot to pilot. Nation, I don't want to keep you any longer. So any further ado, here's Amy White. Amy, what is going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Hi, Justin. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me on here. Yeah, it's, it's a real glad. pleasure to be here. Perfect. I'm glad that we can have you on. I know I told you this before, but I don't think anyone else knows. You were one of the first people I ever followed on Pilot the Pilot when I started it. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. You know, it's amazing how I was reluctant to get Instagram way back when, when I first started flying. And someone convinced me to, and now it's led me to knowing so many people. Yeah, I can't even count them. It's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's insane how Instagram has just united so many people from East Coast to West Coast to United States to Australia, like whatever, insert wherever you are, you can get be connected with just about anyone all over the world. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. So let's start with why. The why behind you even got into aviation. Are you from an aviation family? Did you just always grow up uh, loving planes? What is your reason why you started in aviation? It's a pretty crazy story for me. Um, I grew up on a very rural farm in eastern North Carolina. Airplanes were out of sight, out of mind, out of touch. Nobody in my family had anything to do with airplanes. I just had no idea what it was like. I always had an interest in airplanes. You know, I'd always look up when they flew over and get excited. It was, like I said, out of touch, out of mind. Didn't even think it was a possibility. But then, as I got older, about 14 years old, I started flying the remote control little RC airplanes with uh, one of my neighbors there on the farm. And next thing I knew, it was like, wow, I really like this airplane stuff. That fall, they had the first fly-in at uh, the regional airport that's, that was near my house. So I went with the RC guys for the RC display, and they were giving out Young Eagles rides. Oh man, I was so nervous. I was like, oh, I kind of want to go, but I was making all the excuses as to why to, I would not go on a plane ride. But finally, my neighbor talked me into it. He was like, oh, you'll love it. The cotton fields are beautiful this time of year, all these things. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I was one of the last people to go up that day in a 1954 Cessna 170B. And 
I remember being super nervous, but as soon as we left the ground, I was instantly like in awe, hooked like a fish, knew that this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, like that fast. I just had no idea. You know, I never felt like that. It was just such an adrenaline rush. And so when I got through with that, the Young Eagles offered an online ground school through Sporties for free through recreational, at least. So I took that opportunity and I ran with it. So over the winter, I studied for my written test. My mother got me a flight simulator for Christmas. And I must have put a thousand hours on that thing. I just flew it like crazy. And the next year after that, I got like three flight lessons, one for my birthday, one for Christmas, one for something else. And, you know, money was the issue here, obviously. But I knew I was going to make it happen somehow, some way. When we, uh, I want to go back to when you said rural, when we're talking rural, like how rural are we talking about? Did you have a target within like an hour of you or was it like, uh, <laughs> you didn't really go to target. It was a, a piggly wiggly and all that kind of stuff. Oh man. Yeah. No target whatsoever. Uh, my hometown was 297 people. <laughs> it was small, small. The nearest town had kind of, it had a piggly wiggly, but that that's about as fancy as it was. What what was the closest airport to you? Where where did you actually take the EAA flight? That was in, out of Edenton, North Carolina. Edenton's a pretty little quaint town. Um, it, it's a much, it's a pretty popular like retirement uh, community. So very historical, very quaint. I've been to Edenton. I was based there for like two weeks because I flew the UPS freight contract out of there between Raleigh, Edenton, and I think we went to like Jacksonville. I did that for two weeks down there in North Carolina. Oh yeah, that's sweet. I, I, um, what, what year did you do that? Uh, that would have been uh, probably 2016 or 2017, I believe. That's crazy. Yeah. I would have been around there by then. No way. That's funny. We had a caravan that we were just flying back and forth from there. And we actually stayed in Edenton. We were there for, I think we stayed at like a Hampton Inn or Hilton Garden Inn, something in town or something like that, but it was pretty cool. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I, I'm still friends with the current pilot who's flying the uh, FedEx or oh, really? not FedEx, but UPS caravans. Yeah. I just, I never knew you went through there. That's cool. Yeah, we did. Uh, we would do contract work. So if like their guy got sick or if they uh, didn't have a pilot for it, or maybe the plane went down for maintenance, they would call our, our company and we'd take our caravan down and fill them for them until they needed, they could do the, the route again. That's pretty sweet. Sorry, I didn't manage to run into you. I know, you. right? How dare you? I've been holding <laughs> this. I've been holding this grudge for so long, and now that I have you on, I've came here to make you feel bad about it. <laughs> no, oh, but man. I remember when I was flying out of Edenton, I saw there was like a. I don't know if you saw. I mean, you might have, but there was some bald eagles in the area. Was did you see those while you were there at all? Yeah, they're um, so growing up in that area. They were it was almost unheard of to see them, but as I got older their population started getting um, higher and higher. And now it's pretty common to see them around there. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. I Well, there was a baby one. No, it was a full grown one. Um, and I was taking off on the runway. And as I was going, I was like, what is that on the runway? And then right when I rotated, all of a sudden a, a beautiful American Eagle, just or American body Eagle just flew right over my plane. I was like, what the heck? That's <laughs> so cool. I was like, I hope I don't that hit so that. Majestic. I'll probably have to go to jail. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, Edenson had a had a pretty significant wildlife problem. Um, lots of deer. I had a friend with a commander who chopped the turkey in half on takeoff. <laughs> so 
Yeah. So that area, you really got to watch out for wildlife. Would you say, so growing up where you grew up, do people become pilots there or is it like not, like you said, it's not really even a thought? It is not even a thought. I, I still occasionally go back to my hometown and I walk into the store and everyone treats me like a rock star. It's kind of crazy. You know, I, you know, and I know it's not that difficult to do, but it's just so, such a unthought of thing. And, um, you know, everyone's like, Oh my gosh, you have been flying. How is it? And all these questions and, Oh man, I wish I had your, you know, courage to go do that. And this, and it's, it's really cool. It's not even a thought for most people. So I really do try to spread the message, especially to the other folks. What do you think aside from, from money, because money is a big concern for a lot of people getting the aviation, but how does the aviation community reach those communities that aren't near airports? They don't have the access to it. They just think they can't do it. What could we do to help further um, the mission of getting more pilots in those communities? That's a really great question. Um, Obviously, nowadays with the internet and social media and YouTube, anyone can, you know, get drawn into these YouTube accounts. So, for instance, Mike Patey, Trent Palmer, and be like, wow, this is really cool. And, you know, maybe start considering aviation without having ever seen a real airplane. Um, honestly, the, the fly-ins, the local fly-ins at the smaller backcountry kind of airports, I think, that's what did it for me, at least. I I actually don't really know other than YouTube, social media, and small fly-ins at these communities. If you have any ideas, I'm sure open to them. <laughs> I know, right? We got to brainstorm because I'm sure there is a good population of people that might want to do it if they knew that they could do it. I know a lot of people are surprised. Like we said, how easy it is to get involved. It's just kind of that little quick barrier at the beginning where you just don't think you're qualified, you don't think it's affordable, which I mean, it's still crazy expensive, but there are ways to do it. And there's ways to show people kind of like a, a step from point A to point Z. And we just got to figure out a way to get in all the communities. Absolutely. And yeah, there's quite a lot of people who think that flying is just for the super, super rich people and don't realize that the average American can afford a small plane and, and fly for fun and it's just not a thought to them. So I really do try to spread that message as well. Just might be an older airplane. You're not getting in a brand new SR-22. <laughs> usually, right? nope, nope, If you are, tell me how, because I want to do that as well. Same. Yeah. Well, going back to your story a little bit, what was it? So what was the, how did you continue the kind of the quest and the hunger for aviation from when you first got into it? I noticed that you said the Sporties online program that was free. Um, what was it about that? Was it just, Ever since that ride, it was just in your mind, I have to do this? Or did you have to kind of put it off for a little bit because of your age? Or did you pursue other things and it was always in the back of your mind? I, it's funnily enough, when I first started uh, flying and taking more regular flight lessons, I didn't actually know I wanted to do it commercially yet. I just knew I wanted to do it. Um, I even had considered ultralights because of the cost, right? I was like, some way or another, I'm going to fly. But, um, yeah, the, the free ground school definitely helped, but I did have to push it off for about a year until like, I, I probably just drove my parents up a wall by never always talking about it, constantly flying my simulator 24 seven, you know, showed them my dedication to it by doing the ground school. Um, so when I was 15, my mom started giving me 
about two flight lessons a week at a local at the local airport, part sixty one and a Cessna one fifty. And uh, because I had so many hours on the simulator, I just progressed really fast and I sold with six hours. <laughs> it was it was pretty cool. Um, so it was relatively affordable for me and the way I did it. But it still was, you know, something that I had to push off for about a year and a half before um, we really found a way to make it happen. Yeah. What did you think or what did your parents think about this whole thing? They obviously... Same mindset as you were before, never really thought about aviation, never thought about the ability to do it. They probably just thought expense and danger. Uh, and they probably didn't want you to go into it at first, I'm guessing. But what was kind of uh, your parents' mindset in this whole process from beginning to to actually getting them to get those two flight lessons for you? That's actually really funny you ask. Uh, my My father, he was always super proud of me for it, but he was also always super worried about it. And um, he knew he, Basically, they both knew they couldn't stop me. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, my mom is extremely adventurous. I'm her mini me. It's something that she probably would have done if she had the chance. So she was very, very supportive, um, but also ex- extremely worried. I, I recall my first solo, everyone talked about her in a frenzy with a b- pair of binoculars, you know, looking at me while I'm doing the whole pattern and, uh, super worried, but in the end, like she was super proud of me and really, really supportive. And they both were. So that's awesome. With so they were pretty, like you said, they just knew that this had to happen. There's no kind of getting you out of this. Yeah, absolutely. They, they just, um, they knew they weren't going to stop me and they knew I was mature enough to, to go out and do it. So yeah, I, I can't say enough about their support. It, it was really good. Yeah, I think a lot of times when there's a pilot that's young that wants to be a pilot and goes to their mom, their dad, their parents, and it's just like, hey, this is what I really want to do. There, I think that there can be a lot of pushback because maybe a lack of information, maybe a lack of um, good information out there showing what the process is like and how it is possible. And there are steps that you can kind of take your kid from like 12 until 17 to where he can become a private or he or she can become a private pilot. And I think that getting more information out there like that and getting some good documents and, or even having a documented of your case so people can listen to like the podcast and they can get more comfortable with it and see that there is a path to it and that people can succeed in it. And it's a, it's a pretty good lifestyle. Yeah, I 100% agree. I think the young Eagles program is a great way to do that because if a if the kid just walks up to their mom or their dad and they don't know anything about flying and they're like, Hey, I want to start flying. Obviously there's going to be pushback. But if there's an easy way in, it's like the Young Eagles flights, which you could take multiple of, um, you know, that's not only for the kid, but for the parent, it's kind of an introduction to the world of aviation. So, Do you think you would have gotten into aviation? I know you had the RC planes and you would fly those, but do you think you would be a pilot right now without Young young, Eagles? Rephrase that. Do you think you would be a pilot right now without Young Eagles? It's questionable. It really is. I would maybe not have um, gone as far as I did, as fast as I did. Um, I'm sure I would have would have eventually got there. I might have dabbled in ultralights and something first. But um, the Young Eagles flight and the Sporties Ground School that provided and the support, yeah, man, it's it's tough to say. I know I'd still be in aviation, but I don't know if I'd be 
where I am right now. Right. And let's talk about the story of you soloing in six hours. That's amazing. <laughs> like, I'm sure your instructor uh, never thought that would be like, no one thinks that's possible. Six hours. Uh, I don't know what the national average is, but I can guarantee you it's not six hours. So kudos to you. That's amazing. Well, it was technically 6.4. All right. Well, that's not so as impressive rounded, anymore. Yeah. yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, my, I was not ready like any solo student. I was like, you can't get out yet. I don't want you yeah, to get, get out. Get back in but, here. <laughs> But I was doing just fine and he got out and I did just fine. But, you know, I think I was more nervous on my second solo than I was on my first solo where you do it from start to finish. And you're just always asking yourself, did I forget anything? So uh, it definitely got better from that point forward. Uh, when I soloed, I was too young to get my license still. I was 16, right? I had a year until I was 17. So I spent a lot of time flying around solo and, and practicing things and getting a lot of a lot of uh, experience in before my actual check ride, which was pretty sweet. Yeah, that, I mean, that is sweet. What I guess it brings up my next point is, how did you stay motivated when you knew you couldn't do this for a year? Were you like, anything I do now is experience, I got to stay with it, two flights a week, one flight a week, or is it kind of, you know, maybe I'll take six months off and I'll get really serious for the last six months? Yeah, that's that's kind of an interesting point. I definitely slacked off. There was a point several months after my first solo where I was like, okay, where am I going with this? Because I'm I'm restricted by my age right now. And, you know, maybe I slacked off and didn't fly quite as much. But I still flew because I just absolutely loved it. I would what I would do is go to my instructor and get sign offs for cross countries to all kinds of different places and just go there solo. So I'm always mixing it up and fly around like that. And then, yeah, about since I had slacked off and was kind of used to my little groove I got in when it came down to about a month before my 17th birthday, I was like, Oh boy, I've got to crack down again and actually get ready for this check ride. So that, that was fun. Um, it didn't take very long to get back up to speed, but I definitely had a period where I slacked off, didn't fly quite as much or quite as aggressively doing check ride maneuvers. Yeah. Well, I mean, when, when you have this, this kind of time barrier, when you're too young and this goal is so far away, uh, it's easy to kind of put it off and be like, well, I'll just fly for fun. There's no reason for you to pay for an instructor, like all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden you keep putting it off, putting it off you're like, crap, I got a month left. I got to do this, you know? <laughs> Which sometimes yeah. time is the best motivation because you really have no other way. It truly is. You know, I'm working on my CFII right now and I am doing Shepherd Air for the written test, which I'm sure you know all about Shepherd Air. <laughs> thank the but Lord for Shepherd Air, yes. Thank the Lord for Shepherd Air. But the thing is, I study Shepherd Air best when my test is scheduled and I know I have to be done studying by that date. Otherwise, and it's like, oh, I'll study it tomorrow or I'll study it tomorrow. When you have that time constraint, it really helps you stay disciplined. Absolutely. I would, I mean, I probably would re recommend more time than what I would do, but I'd like test it out and I'd have three days and I would spend all three days just doing everything Shepard Air told me to do. And I'd literally spend breakfast to dinner just looking at Shepard Air and I mean, essentially memorizing those questions because that's pretty much what Shepard Air is. <laughs> Love it or hate it, but it works. Um, but yeah, I mean, that time crunches will definitely improve your studying and it'll force you because it comes to a point where you got to do it or you, or you don't, you know, you got to prove yourself. So yeah, time crunches definitely help. For sure.
What um so what was next? So we talk about you get your private pilot license, you solo six point four hours, get your private pilot license. What was I guess first off, how many hours did you have when you got your private? I think I had about ninety hours by the time my private rolled around because I was just flying around solo a whole a whole bunch. Yeah, so you did a good amount of flying in between that time then. That's good. Um what was your reaction or I guess before the check ride and after the check ride, your private pilot, was it as hard as you thought it was going to be? Did you psych yourself out a little bit or what was your thought process going into it and after it? My private pilot's license. So I'll start off by saying I was my instructor's first student in about 20 years. He was a retired airline captain and um, he was really not up to snuff on instructing or check rides or any of that. So it was kind of a painful morning that that morning of my check ride of fixing things in IACRA and fixing things in the aircraft's logbooks and fixing things in my logbook that should have been there and weren't. Um, I didn't know any better, a student pilot. Uh, my instructor just hasn't hadn't done it for a very long time. Uh, so it was a little more stressful than I thought in that aspect. I'm sure having an instructor on top of the ball and everything would help. But the actual flying part and the, the oral exam, um, they weren't bad at all. I had the same DPE for my private instrument and commercial, and he just is a pro at putting you at ease and really helping you dig those things out of your brain when you're doing the oral and instead of, you know, over there worrying. So yeah, it I wasn't mean, too bad. That's um, a skill that DPE is going to have. Cause I mean, I think some people enjoy the power trip of showing like their dominance and making you, they want to see you not struggle, but they want to see you feel like that the DPE is the boss, you know? Yeah, I I have to say I had a really good DPE for that. His number one thing, because I'm sure he could see I was nervous as all get out at the beginning of all three of my check rides, his number one first priority was to calm me down and get me comfortable before he proceeded every single time. Uh, and it worked. He was very, very good at that. And I'm glad he did that because I was pretty nervous. Um, it's just, I have a, I have a thing about check rides. I get super nervous. I have a very high fear of failure. <laughs> I have not failed the check ride, but I, you know, that fear is always there. So oh, it definitely, you're not alone someone. in that at all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, going into, I guess in your training, how long did it take you to go from, so we know 90 hours from kind of when you loved aviation to get your private, when it first came about to private, what was the process like from then on, from instrument commercial to where you are now? Was it get it done as fast as you can or was it, well, let's take a break, reevaluate, see what I want my career to be? Hmm. Yeah, by the time I wrapped up my private check ride, I think that's when I knew I wanted to do it for a living. Uh, so the next step was instrument for me and I had to take about a year's break to save up enough money to do it. I, I flew around with the safety pilot, got some, some hours like that, some clip time. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it because I, you could definitely learn bad habits that way. Uh, luckily I did not. So I had about 10 hours of, um, just under the hood time when I went to go fast track towards my instrument. I actually went to an airport. And got a hotel and stayed there for 12 days and knocked it out in 12 days. Uh, just flying every single day, like three hours a day, knocking it out, which was really good for retention. Uh, 
So yeah, I got my instrument done. And once again, took about a year's break to save up enough to do my commercial and tried to knock that out in like a two week window as well. That's kind of been the way I've, I've done my reading since my private. My private was kind of drawn out, but my instrument commercial and CFI were kind of, uh, all right, let's go somewhere and let's just do a fast track course and just knock this out because they're all a license to learn and you can spend a year on it or you can get it done and be a safe pilot and then keep flying and get better. Yeah. And I think it's important to show that a lot of people say someone right now that is 15 or 16, they see you, they see me, they see anyone with the ratings that they want to have or the career that they want to have or the life that they want to have. They don't really realize that that doesn't happen overnight. You know, it's very hard. I feel like that gets misconstrued a little bit through Instagram and through everything. And that it's so some people had to take a year off to get, go from private to instrument, go from instrument to commercial. Like none of this happened overnight. It is a very long process and it does. I mean, you can go to ATP and speed it up, but even then it's still a couple months long. Like it's not happening overnight, but it's okay to not have everything in a year or two years or three years. Like it took me almost four years to get my private from when I started. Uh, obviously there's circumstances to that, but like every, like it's okay that you are where you are. I know that everyone has their goal in mind of uh, flying either the airlines or what you're doing or what anyone else is doing, but it's definitely a process to get there. Absolutely. I 100% agree. And one of the advantages, you know, I'm glad I did what I did. I'm glad I took a year or even two years between my ratings to save up as necessary because I walked out of this debt-free. You know, I didn't go to ATP and have, you know, a some giant debt I'm paying off. And a ten dollars an hour flying job, trying to pay that huge debt. Um, because I, I took it slow, I, I went to small schools. I flew when I could. I, I definitely am glad to have gotten all my ratings and and not in a ton of debt. So that that's pretty great. What would your advice be to someone that is younger, that is 15, 16, and in that situation? They're uh, looking at you, looking at someone on Instagram, and they really want to be there. Uh, what advice would you give them for kind of enjoying the moment and enjoy embracing the suck essentially of like what's to come before you can get to kind of your dream job? Hmm. Yeah, I got to think about that one a, a little. It's definitely aviation is something you got to remind yourself how great it is sometimes. So when I started flying on my first commercial flying job, you know, I thought I made it. I made it to the big times. I'm getting paid to fly instead of paying to fly. This is awesome. And then one day it came around when I woke up that morning and I was like, I don't want to go flying this morning, but I have to go flying. And it was such a, a strange feeling I'd never felt before because flying is not my job. Is this not what I wanted? You know, I was just experiencing a little bit of burnout, which will probably experience as a flight instructor or a tour pilot or whatever you're doing for your first flying job. But it just took me a couple days and talking to some of my colleagues about it. And they're like, Oh yeah, I've had that feeling too. And it goes away because you realize at the end of the day that I'm, I'm flying for a living and I have the best job in the world. You know, so you're, you're going to possibly run into that burnout. You're going to possibly feel discouraged at some point, wonder if you did the right thing. Uh, but that's, that's, that was temporary for me. It went away and 
I realized, yeah, this is what I wanted to do. When you were doing your training, did you buy an airplane? My mother and I did. So fun fact, my mother actually soloed. Um, she did. Uh, she got sucked into aviation after I got sucked into aviation because when I first started, I didn't quite have my license yet. So I had to book her for rides to the airport. So she started flight lessons as well. And she soloed on New Year's Eve, I think 2012 or 2013, I believe. Yeah, it was 2013. So she got to solo in it. Um, we went in on the, the Cessna 150 that we, I was training in. Probably did not do that quite right. There was no pre-buy. There was no anything. We didn't know anything about airplanes. Just buy an airplane, um, right? It's like just, car, just, go to CarMax and buy one. <laughs> it was a really good deal. Uh, my instructor had some bigger students and he wanted to get a, a 172 and he just wanted to get this 150 out of his purview. So at first, um, we bought half interest in the 150, which, you know, that's pretty affordable at the time. Half interest in a $20,000 and and after a year and a half, two years, we were able to buy out the other half for a pretty good price, pretty good deal. So it worked out for us. I think it certainly helped me get the amount of hours I got and the amount of time I got just because, you know, you're not dealing with the rental cost. But you do have a whole other set of costs that come with, with aircraft ownership, too. So it's it's not necessarily something I'd recommend, but if you really want to get the most enjoyment out of aviation while you're going through the journey, I definitely recommend it. Talk a little bit about kind of the struggles of owning an airplane that people might not think about. Um, is it kind of annuals? Does it make sure you're, you're putting away for, for maintenance? Is it, um, yeah, I guess pretty much I can't really think of what else might be like common struggles to think about right now. Is that pretty much the only one? Yeah. The big struggles are when, when unexpected stuff breaks, um, the annuals, you know, they, they can vary quite a lot too. I took my airplane to a guy who didn't really do the best annuals for the first two years. So then when I took it to an actual shop, I was almost floored by the annual bill because there are so many things that had been let go for so long. So, but once you get caught up to a certain point, the annual costs are very predictable. And if you're a, a very savvy aircraft owner, you already know what needs to be done when it goes into annual, you already know it needs brake pads. You already know this rivet needs to be replaced. You already know that this instrument's not working. You can have an idea and kind of plan out for it the whole year when you are pretty savvy and you just, you know your airplane really well. Um, other struggles to hanger or not to hanger. You can save a ton of money by not hangering it, but you know, how much money do you really save when you need a paint job 10 years down the road? Probably none. <laughs> so, uh, but it's always super annoying when you have to pay your bills and you realize how much it's costing you. So it's kind of like the fees that you see that don't go toward flying. You know, it's like um, the hangar fees, uh, uh, saving for maintenance and stuff like that, which obviously is smart, but like the fees that don't go into just paying an hourly rate and getting up and going and leaving the plane and not worrying about anything else. It's like, it's not my paint job. I don't have to worry about it. It can park wherever it wants, you know, as long as it's safe and good, I just pay an hourly rate and I'm done. Exactly. You've, you've got a, the great thing about it is you learn to be a very gentle pilot. You're gentle on the power. You're gentle on the landing gear and putting the nose down. You're, 
like gentle on the brakes because you're paying for that stuff, you know? So, so when you actually go to fly someone else's airplane, I've gotten all kinds of compliments at how I fly and how gently I fly and, you know, stay off the brakes and easy on the power adjustments and easy on the nose let gear, letting it down. And that's all because, you know, being an aircraft owner, you just become more conscious of that stuff. Yeah. One of my biggest pet peeves when I was flying smaller pistons was when people were rough on the airplanes. It's like, yo, that's not good. Like you shouldn't go from, you shouldn't increase the throttle a hundred percent as fast as you can. It's like, let's ease it in there. It's like, we're in a two of six. We're going to be okay. You know, we don't need to save the the extra five feet by doing that. And that would always drive me nuts. So I, I totally agree. Yeah, no, I, I will totally cringe up if someone does that. And oh man. I know, right? Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine someone doing that in your airplane? It's like you you let a flight school use it or anything. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're not doing that. Yeah, no kidding. I, I would get really angry really fast. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> You're getting angry already? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um. So you continuing through your, your career, your progression. So you did, we kind of talked about all the check rides. You had the same DPE. You are in the Coast Guard too, correct? I am in the Coast Guard. As when... A when did that come up? When did uh, you say, I want to join the Coast Guard? Was it with the hopes of flying and progressing with aviation? Or was it kind of a need? You felt the call and you wanted to give back and you wanted to serve? It was both of those. So around the time I was graduating high school, I was asking myself, what the heck am I going to do? What am I going to do? Like, what is my life going to be? And um, at that point, I was already out at the airport, engaged with the community. I had a really awesome hangar neighbor, Jeff Wemmering. If you're out there watching this, you're awesome. I love you. He had a whole milt Rands that um, he had right next to my airplane. And he was just a wealth of information and a great mentor. He was a retired Coast Guard chief. And he put the Coast Guard in my brain. He just said that there and put the idea and I looked into it and I was like, you know what? This really sounds like what I want to do. You know, it gives me a chance to give back, to serve. And instead of going out and training to possibly take lives, I'm saving lives. You know, it's a very noble, noble service. And I decided that I wanted to fly for the Coast Guard. This is uh, not the best story, but. I decided I was going to be a pilot for the Coast Guard. And I joined the Coast Guard through the C-SPY program. If anyone's interested in joining the Coast Guard, please look at this program. It's called the College Student Pre-Commissioning Initiative. So it's basically a way to um, both get your degree and become an officer in the Coast Guard. Um, they will help you do both. Um, just Google that and it'll come up and you can read all about it. So I did that. My last two years of college were paid for through the Coast Guard C-SPY program. And then once I was done with college, I went straight to officer candidate school to become an officer. Um, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a long, long drawn out story. So you have to go to boot camp first and then you, well, you have to go to college, then you have to go to boot camp, then you go to OCS, then you apply for flight school. Well, I applied for flight school. Um, I got picked up and 
while I was in OCS, apparently they changed their rules on color vision to be more strict. I was already passing with their backup test, the phalant. And when they decided they were going to get rid of the phalant, I could no longer meet the military's color vision requirements. And I got disqualified for flight school. So yeah, it was kind of my lifelong dream since high school, kind of thrown out the window. Um, moved to Port Angeles, Washington and got stationed on a cutter as an officer fresh out of OCS and continued to fly. But, um, yeah, the, uh, I didn't realize going into it, the, the military is way more strict on their color vision than the FAA is. And I'm just barely mildly deficient enough that I got disqualified. Would you mind talking a little bit of kind of, um, just how that affected you? How did you overcome that? How did you kind of, cause you're already, you're already into the Coast Guard. It's not like you can just be like, all right, peace, I'm out. It's like, you know, you already have to, to, to commit to the Coast Guard. What was kind of the feelings of hearing that news? And I mean, unfortunately, the lifelong dream of being a Coast Guard pilot was taken away. <laughs> oh, yeah. There was, there was a lot of, you know, denial, depression, not knowing what to do when it first happened and, you know, trying to figure out how to salvage this, how to get my dream back. Um, then I reported to my news station and it turns out the Coast Guard is so ridiculously strict on their color vision that I wasn't even, they weren't even supposed to let me be an officer, yet there I was. So um, I was like, okay, so at this point, not only would I have to overcome getting my flight medical, but I have to get, overcome even staying in. So there's no way they'll ever let me fly. So yeah, it was, uh, at that point, I kind of had a mental shift. It's like, okay, well, I'm not going to fly on the Coast Guard. That is what it is. Um, so I got to serve my time and, and, and get out. Although I will say being in the Coast Guard has absolutely changed me as a person. It's, I've gone places, seen places I would have never imagined. I've grown as a person. Yeah, it, it was a good thing it happened. I'm glad I joined the Coast Guard. They certainly helped me pay for college and, and flight uh, my flight ratings and things like that. But uh, yeah, the dream of being a Coast Guard officer and pilot, that's, that's kind of gone now. And the thing I tell most people when they hear my story and they're like, oh man, would you do it again? I'm like, well, to me, you know, it was worth that risk. You have, you have to ask yourself when you go to join any military branch to be a pilot, is it worth the risk? Is the reward worth the risk if I don't get to fly, if I have to stay in the service? To me, it was. that The reward of being a Coast Guard pilot was everything. It was worth every risk. So I don't really have any regrets. That's good. I mean, I'm sure that was a very difficult time. And that's something that takes time to process and understand and, and really come to terms with because lifelong dreams, I mean, Coast Guard pilot, fighter pilot like people have these dreams that they want to get and they're not easy like you said like joining the military and getting these they're very tough in a lot of ways whether it's training whether it's stipulations on who can qualify for medical uh especially when it's you go to the fa and they say you're good but then you go to the military and it's like nope sorry but it's like 
why that doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, don't just make up your own rules for no reason. It's like, tell me why, why can't I operate this way? I mean, it's, it's making me mad just hearing that. So I can't imagine what was going through. And I, I am a firm believer that things do happen for a reason. I'm glad that you were able to, to learn from it and, and take this adversity and learn to become better from it and apply it to your life. It's going to make you a better person, a better pilot down the road. Uh, and it's just going to continue to improve your life. Oh, 100%. Um, yep. Agree with everything there. It's, it's in the end, everything does happen for a reason. I firmly believe that too. So what does, uh, what does your life in the Coast Guard look like right now? Like what's, uh, what's a day in the life of Amy White in the Coast Guard? A day in the life of Amy White in the Coast Guard. So my current villa is stationed on a cutter doing engineering stuff, watching over the engineering people and projects. However, I had a awesome little tumble last year when I was skiing and almost broke my leg. <laughs> um, and ever since that point, I've not really been able to climb around on the ship and, and do the stairs and the ladders. And so I have actually in a way, fulfilled my dream of being at an air station. So I've been temporary duty TDY to the air station. Um, and it has been incredible. So around there, I will help out in anything I can from flight planning to operations to scheduling. Um, being an officer in general in the Coast Guard, especially on ships, it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of admin. It's a lot of boring things. It's, uh, it's a lot of responsibility. It's a crazy amount of responsibility. Um, they say when they put those gold bars on your shoulders that it's this symbolic of the weight that you'll have on your shoulders when you become an officer. And that's 100% true. Um, they also say when your first year as an officer is your most overpaid year in the Coast Guard and your second year is your most underpaid because it will rack up so quickly that by the time you're in your second year as an officer, um, you just have incredible amounts of responsibility. Um, not everyone can handle it that well. I think I did kind of average. <laughs> uh, it definitely took a lot of time and attention for me. So my flying actually suffered a little bit. Um, that in conjunction with the Washington weather, not always working out with my schedule. So I haven't been flying nearly as much in the last couple of years as I used to, but Hopefully that's all going to change. Uh, I'm wrapping up my time in the Coast Guard in exactly one week from now. Oh, so wow. I don't want to say stoked. congratulations or condolences. I'm sure that could be sad and also happy at the same time. It sure is. You hit the nail on the head. It's, uh, it's bittersweet. What does life look like for you after the Coast Guard? Like, what's uh, what are the what are the future plans? How do you want to incorporate flying into your life? Do you want to go full in, like airlines? I feel like maybe you are more of wanting to fly to make sure you're having fun. Like, you're not necessarily looking forward to like a route. That's just how I see it from the outside in. Is that correct, or are you airline all the way? Uh, you're 100 percent correct. Uh, my initial plan out of high school was Coast Guard you know, retire from the Coast Guard and then go fly corporate. I didn't know where I, if I'd be in Maine eating lobster one day or down in California the next day eating taco, you know. I wanted to be adventurous. And um, obviously, since I'm not going to be, be retiring from the Coast Guard, my plans have changed a little bit. Um, immediately, I'm going to be moving to Denver and going to AMP school to get my mechanics license. It's something I've always wanted to do. 
And I feel like while I'm between jobs, it's like the most opportune time to do it. So going to do that, go back to flight instructing um, when I'm, you know, part-time while I'm going to A&P school. After that, I really want to look for like an air ambulance job where that way, since I couldn't do it in the Coast Guard, I can still fly and save lives, right? <laughs> but uh, yeah, something like uh, air ambulance, PC-12s, or maybe boutique, or somewhere where I can get hours and experience and turbine time and perhaps a multi out of it. I don't have my multi-engine right now. Um, eventually, I'd love to be even a fire, fire pilot. Oh, heck yeah. Dang, that, sounds, so cool. that sounds pretty darn cool. Heck yeah. yeah so, <laughs> Anything, anything adventurous, I, I still would 100% love what you do. The corporate flying, the private jets. I think, I think that would be a lot more fun and be different every day versus going into the airlines. You know, there's different it, people view careers differently. You know, it's like, what do you, you need to figure out what you want out of your career? Do you just want that seniority number and be able to have the opportunity maybe one day to fly a 787? then yeah, you need to go to the airlines. If you want non-rev ability, you need to go to the airlines. But there are so many ways to have a happy, a healthy, uh, make good money and do what you want to do outside of just being in the airlines. And that was one of my main missions when I started this was just to be able to share that. Because I, so many people just think you have to be an airline pilot. Or you know, when you tell people you're a pilot, they go, oh, who do you fly for? Like expecting here, American, Delta, United. It's like, well, well, I do this. And like, oh, well, when do you want to go there? It's like, I don't. That's what I want to do. You know, it's kind of like changing the tune on that. That was one of the goals. But you can do so many fun things in aviation. Uh, and I, I really love kind of your your outlook on that. You want to serve the community as well as serve your love for flying. And I think that's so cool. Absolutely. I certainly got that uh, that same um, remark from people when I tell them I'm a commercial pilot. And they're like, oh, which airline? Yeah. I'm like. Hold on, I got to teach you some things here. Yeah, you're like Amy White's airline. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, 150. I'm not completely opposed to being an airline pilot. I'm really not. Um, for the first time in several years, my mind and my journey is open to things that can come up, open to new ideas, experiences, and possibilities. That's good. It's always good to be open in this industry. Take the best opportunity that comes up. Don't just be so gun ho on one thing. As then you'll say no to some cool opportunities because you think that another opportunity will get you to this spot faster. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about, so you sold the 150. That was what, like a year ago almost? Am I wrong? I feel like it was about it, a year ago. It was. It was back in June. Okay. Talk about selling to buying. What was the reason? Because you did buy a pretty sweet new plane that um, I'm actually looking them up right now online and they're, they're pretty sick. I'm not going to lie. They look cool. But talk about why to sell and why to buy a new one. So when I had the 150, I always told myself, this is my forever airplane. I'm always going to keep it. Even if I get another airplane, I'm always going to have this one. Um, that, that changed. Uh, when I moved to Washington, it was just, I'm in a very remote part of Washington where it doesn't have the range and speed to actually be useful. On, on top of that, I made, I made a, a good friend out here. I call him Dad Dave. He's kind of my adopted aviation father out here. And he's six foot four, and we almost can't fit in that airplane at the same time. Uh, so I was like, okay, well, Dave can't go flying with me. It's 
I can't keep up with my friends when we go out flying on adventures because I'm the slowest and I don't have the range to go anywhere either. And I don't have the performance to go camping in the backcountry. And this airplane is just not working for me anymore as much as I love it. So, and I was ready for something a little more challenging to fly. I mean, flying a 150, it sure is a lot of fun, but it's not very challenging. Enter the Glass Star. So I actually was looking at some older airframes like the Iraqa sedan and the Cessna 170. I wanted the tail dragger. I didn't know that much. Um, and then someone, someone mentioned Glassstar to me and I looked it up and I was like, you know what? This airplane meets, meets my mission profile for the foreseeable future. So, um, started looking and in a few months, Woodstock, my yellow Glassstar came up for sale at a very, very good price, um, in Durango, Colorado. So I was able to make that happen and yeah. Super stoked about the airplane. It's kind of like a high-performance 150, if you will. A little roomier, though, right? A lot roomier. It's four inches wider than a Cessna 182. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. I've never... I'm going to be honest. I've never seen one before until you bought it. And I was like, what is that? (laughs) You know, I just never knew. Uh, And it's so cool to... Like, there's so many airplanes out there that people just don't know about. And maybe I'm weird for not knowing about it. Maybe it's a very common airplane up in uh, Northwest and... Uh, the backcountry because it seems like they can serve a good need for that, but it, it's a cool airplane. You know, it it looks kind of like a Cessna, but it's different. You know, like it's just like it's got a cool little look to it. It it definitely does, and you're not wrong. I didn't know anything about Glass Stars when I first started looking into. I mean, I would get confused between Glass Air and Lance Air. You know, like what's a Glass Air? What's a Glass Star? What's a Lance Air? They're all some kind of composite, something or other. Well, there is. There is a um, definite community up here in the Pacific Northwest because this is where they're made. This is where they're, they were um, manufactured and where the factory is for the kits. It's in Arlington, Washington. So there's, they're very prevalent around here. If you fly around, almost everyone knows what it is. But once you leave the Pacific Northwest, it's a very, very different story. A lot of people have no idea what it is. And man, I will get bombarded by people. Oh my gosh, what kind of airplane is this? Tell me about it. And I do with a big old smile on my face. Like, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is Woodstock. Say hi. Yeah, that's cool. No, that's yep. a cool airplane. Like I said, I've, I don't fly. I don't actually get too much flying in the Northwest. So I've never seen one before, but it's definitely caught my eye and it's pretty cool. For sure. Um, it goes about 30 to 40 miles an hour faster than the 150 did. So that's pretty cool. And, you know, not much more fuel burn carries a ton more and meets my mission. I love it. How hard was it for you to find an airplane that met your mission and also met what you were willing to spend? Because obviously there are airplanes that meet every mission, that can meet a mission, but it's going to be very expensive and it'll probably deter you away from flying it because, you know, it's just so expensive. How patient were you? How kind of reluctant were you to settle uh, first? Like, where did you weigh price versus mission? I was extremely, extremely patient. Um and reluctant. I was, I was convinced I was going to get a thirty-five to forty-five thousand dollars Cessna one seventy that needed work and all this stuff. Um, because the the Gloss Stars, they they were a little out of my budget for what most of them were. But when Woodstock showed up, he had a couple a couple things about him. You know, almost no avionics, and was sitting for about five years. So there's some risk there with the engine. 
Um, but he was listed for half of what most glass stars are listed for right now on the internet. So I was like, I was the first one to jump on that. Luckily, man, they were, they were just people coming to that ad like flies, but I, I managed to be the first fly. And so, um, I had a friend go up there and do a pre-buy. He told me, Amy, if you don't get this airplane, you're stupid. And I said, okay. So I immediately listed the 150 and, um, Sold the 150, and then like the next week, I was flying down to go get Woodstock. What were your concerns? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of concerns about a plane sitting for five years. But what did you kind of do um, in the process of trusting it to go take it out, trusting that engine? Did you was it just a very intense pre-buy? Was it a maintenance guy overlooking it just to make sure everything was good? Was it a couple engine runs on the ramp to stay in the pattern for a while before you really trusted it? What was that process like? So the the thing about an engine sitting is it will often cause like corrosion and, and pitting and um, things on the camshaft. And what, what it will cause is an underperforming engine, but not necessarily one that's going to catastrophically fail. So um, it was definitely a risk for, I mean, it was just annual or condition inspection as it's called in this experimental world. But there was definitely a risk with me going and digging it and bringing it back. Uh, Certainly the flight home from Colorado was kind of a test to see how well the tension was going to do. And, um, yeah, the first day I got there, I just went up, did some circles over the airport. Everything sounded fine, looked fine. And yeah, it was, it was talking with several mechanics and getting their opinion on, Hey, do you think this engine will be okay? Most of them said yes. So some so, said no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they, they know there, there's always, you know, possibility that even on a brand new engine, there's always a possibility something can go wrong. Um, but it was stored in a very dry climate. So that was a huge plus. If this airplane had sat for five years in Florida, they would have said, no, it's probably going to need a new engine. Yeah. Eastern North Carolina. No way. Absolutely. But sitting in Durango, Colorado, where it's dry as a bone, um, it's about, if it had to sit for five years anywhere, I'd want it to sit for five years there. Talk a little bit about planning that flight back home with the nerves of the engine, um, with the mountains having to go to the Pacific Northwest. Uh, where did you plan your route? Did you make sure you had airports within gliding range pretty much at all times? Or sure there was times that you weren't? Just talk a little bit about the preparation and that actual flight. Hmm. So it was, uh, there was a bonding flight for sure between me and Woodstock. It was, you know, I, I had two landings in them before I left on my trek home. So every, every landing was kind of still new to me and getting a feel for it. And, um, it's a very honest airplane. So that was good. But the route I took was just kind of standard, the same I would have planned for my 150 or any airplane, other than the fact that it has long range tanks and I could, I could make, uh, a lot fewer stops. So I did, um, when I was, when I was between my, my, uh, departure of my first stop, I had a fault light come on on my auxiliary fuel tank pump. And I was like, oh man, am I not, is my pump gone? Am I not going to be able to use all my fuel that's out there? Turns out it was just a fault light, but it was actually working. So I was able to transfer all my fuel in. But, you know, that was about the only squawk I had with the airplane. Um, I did land at Gooding. Sorry, I did land at Mountain Home, Idaho, because 
I had a CO detector go off. So, you know, it was, you know, things you're dealing with with a, a new airplane, just little squawks, but nothing catastrophic. That's good. I was going to be my next question. Is, do you have any moments where like, oh crap, what's happening? <laughs> so I am, you know, I'm a, a low flyer. I live at sea level. I don't really have a need to go over 6,000 feet most of the time. But when I'm flying back, in a density altitude, it's pretty high. And I'm at, you know, 8,500, 9,500 feet. I got, you know, I got a little lightheaded there at a couple of times. And I was like, oh, you know, what? I don't feel that great right now. And then my CO detector went off right after I thought that to myself. And I was like, well, that explains a lot. <laughs> so um, I took it in the to mountain home and I wasn't able to replicate it with a instrument on the ground. So I was like, oh, well, maybe my detector is just faulty. Well, that was bad on me. I should have never said that. I should have realized, hey, you didn't feel right back there. Funny how we can rationalize stuff like that, right? What's that? It's funny how you can like rationalize or talk yourself into like, oh, you, you kind of forget the whole symptoms. You just are focused on one thing, you know? You're like, oh, I'll be fine. Exactly. And then you have, okay, miles get there right is because if I have to stop, fix this airplane in Idaho, I'm not going to get home. You know, so it's like, eh, maybe I was just not feeling what I thought I felt. Either way, I brought it back home. It turns out I was getting trace amounts of CO in the cockpit, which I later fixed. But uh, yeah, if I could go back and um, try it again, I would definitely have taken that fresh detector the mechanic gave me and did a lap around a pattern to see if I could replicate it in flight because I just tried to replicate it on the ground which obviously didn't show anything when I was getting a backdraft through the tail cone because that's where, that's where I had to plug up the leak. So yeah, at the super high altitudes, I'm not used to flying. I'm sure a trace amount of CO probably could maybe feel a little strange. Absolutely. And it's kind of, you know, your body better than anyone else. So if you ever feel anything weird, like it's okay, tap out, go, go land somewhere else. It's not worth crossing. Uh, going into the backcountry feeling like that, then you're stuck and then you feel like you're forced to get, get out and get their itis comes in, you know? Absolutely. You know, I, I watched a recent story, um, from Dan Bass, a, a fellow who landed his Mooney or crash landed his Mooney after he passed out from CO poisoning. And in his interview, he talked about the way he felt, the way he had this giant anxiety, anxiety in his chest. And a feeling that he needed to land right now and he didn't even know why. Like, and I was like, that was me. That's how I felt. I just, I felt like I need to land right now and I have no idea why. Um, that was the feeling I got right before my CO detector went off. So oh, wow. it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. So your body was definitely telling you. And it's, I feel like in that case, a lot of pilots can get nervous of like what people think of when they land if nothing's wrong. It's like, well, I could just be overthinking. It's like, well you should land until it's better to know you're overthinking on the ground than to be up in the air and you're passed out. <laughs> so it's Absolutely. worth the embarrassment of the mechanic that you'll probably never see again in a random airport being like, yo, this is fine. Like, what's your deal? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Really funny. All right, Amy. Well, those are pretty much all the questions. I Actually, I guess the other question is we kind of talked about your future, but like, what's the next step for you at getting out of the Coast Guard? Is it getting your multi uh, CFII you said you're working on? Do you want to go back to instructing and building your time that way? Or would you like to see yourself get into a boutique uh, PC-12 right seat job as soon as possible? So I realize that I have been away from flying a little bit, you know, not flying as much as I used to. 
And I really would love to get back into instructing to get myself kind of up to speed and super proficient. Um, Because I'll tell people, I don't feel ready to go do an ILS down to minimums in a PC-12 right now. There's no way. So I need, you know, probably a good few months of hardcore flying to get myself back up to speed. Um, You know, get back on that bicycle or horse or however you want (laughs) to phrase that. Insert whatever. uh, Yeah. Insert whatever. Get back in the airplane and just get super proficient and comfortable with flying again. So to me, that's going to be instructing, especially with the way jobs are looking right now. And, you know, I've got about just over a thousand hours. And so the job outlook for pilots with a thousand hours is probably the same as it used to be for pilots with 300 hours. So (laughs) um, I realize instructing is probably going to be my future for eh, at least maybe a year. That's not the worst thing though. I mean, I I know you probably want to fly bigger stuff eventually, but you definitely recognize the fact that you've been away from kind of this. And I think you're taking a very safe approach. I'd imagine it's going to come back to you sooner than you think. And you might find yourself restless in like six months at your training, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy training from the sounds of it. It's kind of like a, a service for you to give back, like I said earlier, and you can help encourage the next younger generation. Absolutely. Uh, that that's the general plan in the, my CFII and my multi-engine are the next two up on the plate. So I actually applied for a scholarship uh, for my CFII. I really hope that comes through. I'll try to get that this summer. I know, right? And I hope so too. Can we help? Can we? Uh, can I go email them and tell them that you deserve it? <laughs> I know there's probably tons of people out there that deserve it. And, you know, I'll get it one way or another. That's for sure. Absolutely. I love that attitude. But Amy, those are pretty much all the questions I have for you. Next is just a very quick rapid fire section. So I'm going to ask you basic aviation questions and you answer with the first kind of term, aviation, whatever that comes to mind. All right. Wow. Okay. I didn't know this was coming. Oh yeah. All right. All right. What is your favorite airplane? Any airplane in the whole entire world? What's your favorite airplane? Uh, I'm going to go with the glass star for now. I like it. What's your favorite corporate jet? Ooh. Ooh. Um, probably one of the, the, like the Cessna shoot. What? Like the, (laughs) they're all, they're all cool. I don't really know about it. You can just say a Cessna jet. How about that? We'll go with that. Sure. We'll go with the Cessna, Cessna line. Yeah. Cool. All right. What about an airliner? So like, uh, you can say there isn't one too, if you don't like one, but, uh, your favorite airliner of all time or that's currently flying. All right, you're probably going to call me crazy, but the Embraer 175. Oh, it's the most comfortable, absolutely. most fun passenger airplane I fly. Like, I love flying on the 175. It is easily the most comfortable airplane as a passenger. I will 100% agree with you. Yep. Unless you're in first class in like a 787. That's different. But for for me, who can only afford economy on my own, I would choose a 175 any day. Oh, yes. What is something you wish you knew before you became a pilot? Um, uh, how, how many regulations there are to learn and know, um, I mentioned my instructor had been out of the instructing realm for a while when I first became a pilot. So, uh, he didn't really do a good job of teaching me flying, and it took me, I didn't realize how important it was because he didn't make that apparent. So, uh, after I got my private pilot's license, I really started digging in and realizing how important it is to know your FARs. Uh, you know, it's 
one of those things. That's difficult to go back to that mentality because it's not fun. You know, if you get all the fun stuff at first, you're you're less likely to want to dig into the unfun stuff because you're like, I just like flying. I don't care about the far aim, you know? Yeah. All right. Who in the industry would you like to meet most? Oh, man. Gosh. <laughs> they could be um, famous. They could have passed on by now. They could still be alive. Uh, it could be like Orville and Wilbur, Amelia Earhart, anyone like that. Oh, I'd love to meet Amelia Earhart. That, that would be really cool. What is your favorite thing about aviation? Overall, choose one thing. What's your favorite thing? Freedom. What's the hardest approach or flight you've ever flown? Mm, uh, I was in my Cessna 150 doing an ILS approach back to Edenton with 20 knot winds, half, and it was about a mile of visibility, I guess. Oh, nice. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it was like my first actual approach in the airplane too. So it was exhilarating and I was super happy to pop out of the clouds. and Were your hand shaking when you got on the ground a little bit? Uh, you know... Maybe, maybe a little bit, but it was just probably just pure exhilaration of, I just did that, you know, it was super cool. That's cool. What's your favorite approach or your favorite flight you've ever had? Hmm. One flight or like, uh, because if I have to say it, it'd be taking my 150 from coast to coast, but that was like 20 flights. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. I can count as one flight. Okay. That's funny. Dang. That's a long, that's a long week right there. It was. Yeah. Um, what is your overall favorite airport you've ever landed at? Ooh. Uh, that's a hard one. All of them. I mean, I, I enjoy all the, everything that is unique about every single airport out there. I will say, um, in the mountains of North Carolina, like Boone and Rutherfordton and, oh, I, I got it. I got it. Um, SJS, um, let's see, Big Sandy Regional in Kentucky. You have been there that's before. Gonna be, that's going to be my favorite, yes. The only time I've landed there, I had a 30-knot crosswind and a 206, and it was so bumpy. I was so not happy. <laughs> I was like, I never <laughs> want to fly again after that. I love SJS because it's just, they're so friendly there. They literally gave me their their Hummer and said, go down the road and get some breakfast. I was like, okay. Thank you. What about Thank least you. favorite? Do you have a least favorite airport? Hmm. It's okay if you don't. You can always say no. Yeah, no. What about IFR or VFR? Would you rather fly one or the other? I'd rather fly VFR. I, I enjoy the low and slow and looking out at the scenery. What's your favorite airport food? So let's say you are doing a cross country. You did that long cross country in the 150. What was your favorite kind of airport food to go grab the crew car and go get food and come back? What, were your, what was your go-to? I'm going to say Chick-fil-A. Yes. If, that, if that's an option. It is. Chick-fil-A is always an option. <laughs> always an option. It's Sunday and we can't eat Chick-fil-A. So I'm sad. Oh man. I know. Uh, would you fly over, would you rather fly over mountains, the beach or cities? Ooh, from a safety standpoint, the beach. <laughs> but honestly, I really love flying through the mountains and the beach. Honestly, when I, my first commercial flying job was flying tours down the beach and I, Absolutely love that job. So it's hard to choose. Airbus or Boeing? If you could choose one plane to fly, what would it be? Or Embraer, I guess. The way you can throw the 170 and 175 in there for you. Yeah, Boeing or Embraer. Yeah. Long trips or short trips? Would you rather fly, let's say you're in your glass air, would you rather fly 
one very long trip as long as you can possibly fly or would you rather fly the max amount of takeoff and landing as you could in one day? Long trip. Yeah. What is the hardest check ride you've ever taken? My CFI. Biggest regret <laughs> in your career that you have so far? My biggest what? Regret. If you have Regret. One. Like you go back and change it and do it again and you wish you didn't do it that way. Or um, just, yeah, anything that you say that you might regret in your career. Um, taking my IFR check ride in an aircraft with a GPS when I trained in one without a GPS. Yeah, that can make things a little difficult. <laughs> It was a little difficult. Yeah. I squeezed through it, but I was sweating bullets. Oh man, that's the worst. Yeah. Yeah. Do what you're most comfortable in. I highly recommend that. If you're comfortable without a GPS and don't use a GPS, it's just going to add too much complexity. Yep. What is the biggest win of your career so far? Hmm. Probably watching my first student solo and realizing that I made a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> I made you. <laughs> yes. Uh, part 141 training or 61? If you'd recommend it to anyone, what would you choose? Or what would you recommend? 61. It's more flexible and you can tailor it to the student, get the maximize the most out of learning and get the most bang for your buck. Favorite aviation themed book? Ooh. I'm like reading a couple right now. So, hmm. yeah, I don't, uh, well, just say stick and rudder. All right. There we go. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the Pilot to Pilot podcast. Uh, I've been meaning to get you on for a long time, so I'm glad we finally made it work. Uh, I think your story is pretty awesome. Uh, I wish you the best in everything you got coming up. I know a big change is coming in a week. You're coming back to the civilian world and going to be able to chase all your flying dreams. So I wish you the best. And if you need any help with anything, don't hesitate to ask. I sure will. I really appreciate it. It's been super great to be able to be on the podcast with you. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. You too. And that is a wrap of episode 163 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Avi Nation, thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. The more reviews, the more people that find the podcast. So it definitely helps. If you're on the fence of leaving a review, just do it. Don't even think about it. Just get five stars. Five stars. Uh, either way, I appreciate it. Uh, follow us on Instagram. Check us out on Patreon. And I hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.